I'll be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And I would invite you, wherever you are, to go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Here is the Word of the Lord. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ forces us, calls us, compels us to ask the question, what is the worth of a human life? Now, when we frame it that way, what is a life worth? It seems like we're asking a question that the economists would have something to say. And if you were going to ask the value of anything, what is the value of a chair? What's the value of a book? What's the value of my car? Well, you know, you might go up and look up the value of something that you have. You might go, if it's a car, you might log on and look at Kelly Blue Book to find out what the value is. What can I sell this thing for now? But really, ultimately, a good economist would tell you what is the value of that thing. The value is whatever somebody is willing to pay you for. That's the value. What is the value is whatever someone's willing to pay. Um, there was an interesting experiment on this. In uh, July 2005, a guy named Kyle McDonald really wanted to ask, what is the value of this, of a single paper clip? I know you can't see it. That's probably the point. He took a paper clip, and he wanted to see what he could trade it for and see what the ultimate value of a little paper clip would be. Turns out that this paper clip is worth a house. He wound up trading this thing for a little two-story farmhouse in Canada. Well, how did he get there? Well, it wasn't just one trade. Not, nobody just handed over their house for a paperclip. It took a, a couple of things. There were a few steps. Actually, there were 14 steps, and it took him about a year. Because, see, he could find somebody that would say, this paperclip actually was a red paperclip. Maybe that's the key. The whole value was changed. He had a red paperclip. Uh, and he was able to t- give that red paper clip to one person in exchange for a little fish-shaped pen. And he took that fish-shaped pen and then he traded it with somebody else for this hand-sculpted doorknob. Was kind of an interesting doorknob. Suddenly the paper clip had turned into a doorknob, but then he could find that he could take that doorknob and exchange it with somebody else for a Coleman Camp stove. Well, that was interesting. The paperclip has become a stove now, except then he took that stove and traded it with somebody else for a Honda generator. Now he had the generator in his house. If you want to know what he could do with that, the generator, he wound up turning it into an instant party. Somebody gave him an empty keg, an IOU saying he would fill it up, and a Budweiser beer sign. He took that instant party and was able to trade it to somebody else to get a Ski-Doo snowmobile. Now the paperclip had become a snowmobile in just a few months. But then he took that snowmobile and he traded it for a two-person trip to Yak, British Columbia. I have no idea 
if that's someplace I'd want to go. Never been there. But he had that trip, and in fact, he took that trip and traded not the two-person trip, but just one of those spots. So now, really, we're talking about the value of half a paperclip. Took one of those spots and traded it for a box truck. Now, the box truck he took, and he found somebody that would take the box truck in exchange for a recording contract. Now, he wasn't a musician, didn't need the recording contract, so he took this recording contract at this particular studio and exchanged it with somebody else for a year's rent in an apartment. Now he had an apartment for a whole year. He wasn't satisfied there. Now he took that year rent and exchanged it with somebody else for an afternoon with Alice Cooper. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Now we're getting kind of exotic here. And in fact, he found somebody that really wanted that afternoon with Alice Cooper. Don't know what he was wanting to ask him. But he took that afternoon with Alice Cooper and he traded it for a KISS-themed motorized snow globe. I wish I could have found a picture of that motorized snow globe. But he wasn't satisfied there. Now he took that motorized snow globe and he exchanged it for a role in a movie that was getting ready to be filmed. Then he took that role in that movie film and exchanged it for a two-story farmhouse. And in about a year, from July 2005 to July 2006, with a lot of miles traveled, mind you, Kyle McDonald had taken a single red paper clip and had turned it in to a two-story farmhouse. What is the worth of a paperclip? Turns out, it's a house. But all of a sudden, that moment, now you begin to reimagine as he's trading up, you're beginning to rethink the value of all these little things that surround you. What could you turn that into if you were a little clever and did a little work? But I wonder, as you trade up, is there a point when he's got the farmhouse and he's looking back, does he ever miss the paperclip? Does he wish I really could just have that paperclip back? I think not. Because what he is clear to him as he's trading his way up, it's clear that in every trade, he's trading for the better thing. And that's really the heart of Easter. The heart of Resurrection Day is a celebration of the better thing that we have in Christ. It's an invitation, really. Resurrection is a celebration. Resurrection Day celebrates this better thing that we as the church, we as the body of Christ, have in Him. And it is an invitation for others to come along, to join us in this journey. But, but to do that, if we're to consider the celebration that we have as believers in the resurrection, if we are to consider the trade that others are being invited to make, we need to count the costs. And indeed, that's what Paul is doing here in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 is a moment where Paul is at a place where he is suffering. He is in prison. And he is writing to a church that he loves. And the theme that he writes to this church in the midst of his own suffering is a message about joy. The joy that he has in being a servant of the gospel, a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. It's the joy that he has in being called into the journey that he's being called into, and an invitation for them to join him in that journey of joy. But, but to do that, to come along and be part of the journey of being a follower of Christ, requires something of us. It requires um, that we put an end to the most seductive thing for each of us, which is self-justification. We want to earn our way 
through life. And really, that's what Paul is talking about in verse 7. When he talks about this language of accounting and these economic terms, whatever gain I had, I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. These things that I had that were worth something to me are now worth nothing because I have known Christ. What he is speaking about is the calling that came on his life, but I think it says something more. He is saying here that his calling wasn't just a calling. It was not just an invitation. It was a conversion. For Paul, um, he was in a moment turned from being an enemy of Christ to a slave of Christ. And that happened because he was changed, because he was converted. Uh, the, the story for him is told in the book of Acts, but it's the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus as he is an enemy of the church, a persecutor of the church, persecuting them because they are standing against the way of God, because they are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord and he believes that to be a false message. And in a moment, Jesus Christ appears to him, he is blinded for days, and as he emerges from that, he becomes, turns from being the greatest enemy of the church to its greatest ally and its greatest advocate. His life then is turned, converted, and in a moment he is given a new trajectory in his life. But for Paul, what he realizes is that in that old life, he was counting on a lot of things to make him righteous, to give him good standing before God. It's kind of like the modern conversation that you might hear if you're talking about faith or religion with people. They can say, I don't need your faith because I'm a good person. And usually if you talk about them enough, they want, everyone thinks they're a good person. And usually the standard is, well, you know, I'm not Hitler or anything. Well, we all make mistakes. But against that standard, that Paul is in a place where he was celebrating all of the good things in his life. He was a righteous Jew a follower of the law. He had all sorts of education. He was deeply educated, knowledgeable about the law, had all of these things about him in his status as a righteous Jew that would be cause for celebration. He had education. He had achievement. He had a rich heritage. And all of that in his mind gave him a kind of religious righteousness. He was, in his mind, the ultimate good person. But all of those things that were once the basis from which he would find his self-worth, justify his own life. All of it now is loss, verse 7. All of it is loss because of Christ. All of those things that were gain for him. And then he amplifies it. Gain becomes loss. And then verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus has reordered for Paul his sense of value and worth. And that is part of what it is to be a follower of Christ. To, be, to follow Jesus Christ is to reorder our own sense of what things are worth. worth. For Paul, he goes so far that he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's, it's an offensive term. It's a harsh term. He, he is, in a sense, revolted by what he once regarded. Now, in other places, he'll talk about his heritage and his knowledge of the law is so useful to him in his ministry. 
It's, it's, it's not as if all that stuff has no meaning or value, but all of that stuff, the, the value that it has um, is not a basis from which he has achievement or worth or standing before God. And what he realizes as he compares the value, it's as if he's comparing the value of the paperclip to the value of that house that he now has. He's looking at the paperclip and saying, yeah, it was fine for what it was, but next to what I have now is worth discarding completely. He has, in Jesus' own terms, he's, he has found that pearl of great price, and he's willing to sell everything he has in order to have that great pearl. It's reordered his sense of value, has reordered his sense of what things are worth, what price are we willing to pay. I think uh, you know, somebody a few weeks ago noted that in the midst of this pandemic, as it first unleashed, suddenly all of our resources, sense of what we valued, what we wanted, were changing. So you could go to the grocery store and good luck finding toilet paper or eggs or milk or napkins or whatever it is that's scarce that week, and yet the candy aisles remain full. Because all of a sudden, there's this reordering, a sense of priorities. Here, he has found his life reordered. And in fact, as believers, we are to find our life reordered because of who Jesus Christ is. That we are, in fact, not able to stand on our own two feet. Not able to justify ourselves through our own merit, our own achievement. But in fact, we are called as believers to live in full dependence on God's grace to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to embrace Christ, is to abandon our own journey of self-justification. We do not have to justify ourselves because we cannot justify ourselves. We cannot be in right standing before God. The sin is too great. The barrier is too, too far. We need Christ to do that for us. Paul has seen that in his own life and what he has experienced is not simply a calling, but a conversion. He has been changed. And he reflects that conversion, that change, really, over the next three verses. And he invites us on this whole picture of what it is to be a follower of Christ. First, verse 9, he talks about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is about a new kind of status for, for Jesus' followers. What does he say? It really breaks up the sentence right in the middle, but he has a whole new idea. He says, he counts it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, but then verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For him, the essence of the gospel here is found that we are found in Christ, that we are in union with Christ. You see it several times. He wants to, be gain, to gain Christ in order that he may be found, not, notice, not with him, but in him. We are in Christ. Now that's a hard image to get our mind around, but that is a sense of the unity that we have as Christians, as followers of Christ. We are united in Christ. We may be found in in him, but and it happens because we have this righteousness that is not our own, but that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of our God that depends on faith. We have this unity, this union with Christ that is at the center of who we are. It's really at the center of Paul's theology. 
If you want to understand what Paul thinks about what it is to be a follower of Christ, there's two words you just keep repeating, in Christ. And you can just underline every time you see that in the Apostle Paul's writings, and it will overwhelm you how important that is to him. We are united in Christ. We are called to be part of him. Uh, He is taking us in as a part of himself. That's the level of depth and intimacy that he calls us to. It's about a new identity, a new status. This union changes our standing before God. Um, The gospel, according to one scholar, is about a person and a life. It's about Jesus Christ and about the life that he lived and the life that we are called to live in him. We are in Christ and he clothes us here. Notice this language. We have a righteousness that's not our own, but that comes from the law. We are in Christ, and we are since clothed with the righteousness of Christ. What Christ accomplished, what Jesus accomplishes in his resurrection, as he dies for us and then is you know, raised again in that resurrection, that is a conquering of death, a vanquishing of sin, the twin powers of sin and death that have been part of the human existence since the fall of Adam and Eve. Throughout history, the twin powers, last year as we studied Genesis, we saw a lot of how that twin, the twin powers of sin and death kept, kept rearing their ugly head at the beginning of the story. And sure enough, that story continues throughout the Old Testament. We see again and again the twin powers that cannot be defeated are the powers of sin and the power of death. We, can't, we cannot fight them. We can't do anything about them. We can't solve them. And then in a moment, as the crowd, as, as his followers look at the empty tomb, as they greet the risen Lord, there is this declaration that Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death. He is the righteous one. He is the one that has vanquished sin and death. He is the one that has stood against it. And here, as he is clothed, we is, as we are clothed with his righteousness, with this alien righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ, we are cloaked in him, found in him, and so what Christ accomplishes for us, we experience the benefits of. We celebrate. This union that we have comes to us not because of a work of our own, not because we've earned it, not we've done anything to deserve it, but because of our faith in Christ. That's the end of verse 9. It comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This alien righteousness, this righteousness that is outside ourselves is given to us and suddenly we have this new verdict. And I think there's a change here as we move from verse 9 to verse 10. Here, first in verse 9, when he's talking about this righteousness, the, the idea of righteousness in Scripture generally, most often, is a legal term, not just a moral term. It's not simply talking about righteousness being somebody that does things the right way, but righteous in the terms of having the right standing before the law. And those become two different things. The judge uh, may declare a person not guilty because there's insufficient evidence. Um, And they may actually have done it. In fact, they may go walk out of the courtroom if they are declared not guilty, found not guilty, and they can walk off and then give an interview in the next moment describing to everybody the crime that they committed. They may, in fact, actually have done it. And there's nothing the law can do. The law is powerless because that declaration of being not guilty is something they can live under. They're free by the law. 
Verse 9 is about that legal verdict, that through the alien righteousness of Christ, we are now clothed in a righteousness, and we have a standing before God the Father that we are not guilty. Now, there's a problem there because we still are very much actually guilty, and that's where verse 10 comes in. Resurrection is not only about a new status, The resurrection of Jesus is about a new way of walking. What does he say in verse 10? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I want you to think for a moment about that word power. The resurrection is our source of power for how we live right now. The theologians, the way they would talk about it, verse 9 is about justification. This is about the gift of God that he justifies us through this new standing, through the work of Christ. Here, verse 10, the theologians will talk about our sanctification. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. It is not simply a legal change. That declaration of not guilty now is shaping and changing our lives so that the resurrection becomes a source of power for real and vital moral change. We are living our lives as believers seeking to conform to his death. Now that's an odd image for us, but it is an image of a road that we are now walking on. The resurrection has opened up, set up a new path, just as Paul had a a new journey that he went on on the road to Damascus. He was converted, and though he was going this way, now the rest of his life is going this way. That moment of changing direction is that moment of justification, but now he is walking a path. And the followers of Christ are living our lives now, seeking to follow the road that he has for us. But notice What does that road look like in verse 10? It's resurrection power so that we can share his sufferings and become likened in his death. Suffering and death. I, I don't know that there's any way that Paul could make it clearer to us that the road that we are promised will not be easy. To be a follower of Christ is to follow in the way of suffering. It's to follow in the way of death. Now, that, that may take on very different forms. Um, for some, that, that is, means actual suffering. People will be and are today being persecuted for their faith. There are folks here on Easter Sunday around the world that are, are not just violating government orders related to public health, but they're, in their worshiping, they are violating government orders about not worshiping anything other than the ruler, other than the emperor. There are folks who are risking life and limb to lift their voice in worship, to join us in the, at the table, to take bread and to take the cup. Uh, they are risking life and limb, and some will actually now be persecuted for that. That's the road that God has called us to. It's the road of suffering, and it's the road of death. For some, the, the testimony of the martyrs throughout history The testimony of the martyrs even today is that the road uh, may lead to death. But even for most who don't experience that kind of suffering and that kind of death, um, it's not always going to be easy. It's going to ask something of us. And it may simply be that it asks us to lay down our own path of self-justification, our own self-righteousness. We have to lay down that which we find comfortable or easy. The road that we are promised is not easy, but it is true. 
It is the true path. It's the real path that we have to keep walking. I, uh, I've been reading, said lately, I think I've been reading the, 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 the last book of Lord of the Rings to my kids, and it finds you know, Frodo and, uh, and Sam on this final journey to Mount Doom. And Frodo will talk about in those, as he nears this mountain, how every single step gets harder than the one before. It's this, he, and he has no sense that he's going to live, that he's going to survive. He is making his way, but he knows that he has to make that journey because it's the right thing to do. It's the only path that he can walk. That's the road that he promises for us, the road that we are walking, even when it's not easy, even when it's not easy. It is the right path, and we keep on that path. But he is, we are not doing it under our own strength. He's, we are doing this with the power of his resurrection and, and, and with the power that Jesus Christ can die and, and go to the place of the dead and return victorious. That power is now alive and at work in all of those of us who have faith in Christ. That's the strength by which we can walk this journey. And no matter how hard we might think about this place in the journey, any place that we're at, how hard the struggle might be before us, we don't really have to focus so much on the, how hard the struggle might be. Where our focus needs to go is to the strength and the power that we have in the resurrection. We can be aware of the challenges before us, and they're real. We can look at the road that we have, and every single one of us that's that's out there listening right now, every single person has a different struggle. We say, this is the stuff. This is where the stuff of faith is hard for me right now. We can all talk about that. That's important. We can talk about those struggles and see how they make sense. But the thing that unites us, the thing that we recenter on is the reality of the resurrection, the reality that the re- resurrection is our source of power to sustain us on this road. This is the road that we are called to walk on. And in that, it is this painful process that he is changing us, transforming us into what one writer once said, that we are being transformed into little Christs. And that's why Christ came. Christ was the end of history, the purpose of history, and he came to create a gathering, a church of little Christ, people who are being changed by the power of his resurrection. But there is more. This new status that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this new way of walking, this new path that we are on through the power of his resurrection leads us ultimately to a new destiny. Look at verse 11. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It, it is speaking here in just one line about the culmination of our faith. In theological terms, we've talked about justification and sanctification. Verse 11 is the third dimension of our salvation, which is our glorification. It is the culmination of our faith that the resurrection of the dead that is coming for us is a future event that we look forward to where perfection is obtained. That, that something is coming that will make all things right. The resurrection of Jesus is a promise of the future resurrection of his bride. And in fact, that's what we're reading about and studying here all year as we spend our time week in and week out in Revelation. Um, the resurrection is the culmination 
of our journey in faith, that we walk a path that leads us to a destination. You notice, just think about the consistent imagery throughout as Paul really helps us understand the Christian life, that we are turning in conversion a new direction. We are repenting of an old way of life and turning to a new way of life and then spending our life trying to figure out how to live that path. And in the course of that path, we will find ourselves turning away, turning back to the old ways, turning back to the old way of thinking, the old man, the old sin, and we will constantly, daily even, have to find ourselves turning back to this new way, turning back to the new path, keeping our eyes on the destination to which we are heading. And here, there is this glorious sense that Paul knows that the resurrection is coming. The resurrection is coming for us. There is this promise of a world made right, of our hearts made right, of bodies transformed, of all the sin and death and destruction and sadness and sorrow being washed away and all being seen ultimately in the good purposes of a God who is glorified through His bride, remade and reborn. But notice when he says it, verse 11, He doesn't just say all of that. He says it in an odd way. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's it's an odd way. In fact, some have said, is Paul doubting whether he's going to make it? I don't think so. I think you can read a lot of different Paul's writings, and there's an immense confidence that Paul has about the destiny he has, a confidence that's not born in him. And I think here's the trick. This confidence for Paul is not born in anything that he's got or done. It's simply born in the reality that Christ has called him, that Christ has converted him, and Christ is determined to get him home. His strength, his sustaining power is the strength of Christ, this alien righteousness of Christ now doing something in him, shaping him, changing him. The ministry of the Spirit is shaping and transforming him, and the power of the resurrection will be enough to get him home. And so what he balances here, Paul, in this moment, is balancing this confidence that he has in the strength of God through Christ to accomplish his purpose in the ministry of the Spirit in his life with the awe and humility that he knows he does not deserve it. Martin Luther once said that we are paupers all, that we come before the throne of God as beggars looking for some handout. And here Paul is, is, is joining us and leading us in that, that he is holding his hand out and reminding it, even as he imagines the end of the journey, the good journey to which he is destined because of the purposes of God at work in his life. He knows that he will stand in that day simply as a beggar receiving a lavish grace that he does not deserve. So what is a life worth? Well, I think the resurrection tells you. The the resurrection is what God says, this is what I'm willing to pay for a life. Through the death, the ministry of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is saying loud and clear that we need to make the trade. You trade yourself up, trade up for the resurrection that he has done. We're getting much more than we bargained for, much more than we deserve, but we're showing up with nothing but our death-deserving sin. And through the the miracle of faith, we are given life, and life abundant, and life eternal. So today, live in light of that resurrection. The resurrection 
can shape the values that we value, the hope that we have, how we see ourselves, how we see others around us. Every person before us is now seen in light of the value of people that God has said in the resurrection. It shapes our hope for the present. It shapes our hope for the future. Live in light of that resurrection. If you're a believer, if you've been walking that path, look for the ways that you've been turning your head aside, that you've been looking back to the old ways, the old way of life. Repent and turn back and keep on the path. Look ahead to the destination that is given to us because of the glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if this is a new day for you, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, consider the resurrection. Take it seriously. Look at these two destinies that Paul lays out here. He can look at all the things that might give him merit, and you should consider all of the things in your own life that you say, this is what gives me standing. This is what gives me value. This is what makes my life worth living. And know that Paul will tell you he's considered it all, and next to knowing Christ, it's all rubbish. Cast it aside and live your life in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I I pray for every person who is hearing your word. I pray that you will shape and change our hearts. God, I pray for every believer here on this Easter Sunday that you will lift our eyes away from the moment, away from the, the crisis of the moment, the things that may consume our attention, consume our energy. Lift our eyes to the glorious resurrection, to the power that we have to change our standing, to change the journey that we're walking now, to change our destination. And God, I pray for every person here this, in this season who is considering anew the fragile nature of life, the fragile nature of economies and governments and wealth and all of the things that we depend on. And God, I pray that you will awaken faith among those who hear these words, that you will awaken faith anew, that they will see in Christ, the pearl of great price, worth trading up for, worth living for. In Christ's name, amen.